Well, welcome to Night School 001. This is Alexander Schmidt with longtime, soon collaborator and colleague, Mr. Wesley Shantz. Welcome back, Mr. Wesley Shantz. Hey, and this one's a little different, so trying something new all the time. It's going to be fun. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm, I'm uh, just setting up our share here, and there we are. Can you see this now? Yeah. All right, great. So, so to tell the listeners something about what it is we're doing here in this new segment is something uh, Mr. Wesley Shantz and I are very passionate about is education. We're both educators. We've both been educating for many years now. Uh, I've been in education for six years now. He's been in education. Uh, Wes is for eight years now for you. Yeah, you know, around, around eight, ten years. I don't know. And so that's not a tremendous time in education, but we have had tremendous resources at our backs while we have been educators and before being educators, being able to go through the prestigious St. John's uh, teaching program there. It's not officially called a teaching program, but many people who will be and who are teachers do engage in the Great Books program there. Um, it's like getting some premium fuel to put in the, to put in the Maserati, you might say. But so something... Um, Something that Wes recently wrote about that I wanted to ask him about was an experience in a tr of a traditional English lesson at uh, sort of a traditional public school. And uh, because of some of the problems that you identified there, I wondered if this project here where we offer professional development and we offer analysis of wide, widely read and widely disseminated poems by, um, by English teachers in America, like The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe, whether what you wanted to offer here was maybe something special or something useful or something that could actually be meaningful and interesting to a teacher and to a student rather than just the the sort of perfunctory uh, what's written into the glossy lesson planner uh, that you yeah. experienced. Um, yeah. yeah. As, yeah, so I, I'm a substitute teacher now, so I see a lot of classrooms and I see various kinds of lesson plans that are left for me or you know class that has more than one teacher in it then i see how the teacher d deals with their lesson right uh and so yeah the the experience can be harrowing um and i'm sure everyone has had good english teachers and and other subjects and bad teachers um or just bad days you know whatever anyway yeah this this kind of environment is is as you say uh a specialized one, right? We're, we're free here to have the kind of ideal lesson that you might dream up um, and and get to experiment with different things that we might want to do with uh, with these works. And uh, it's, it's only going to be useful for people um, if something that they hear here or that they, uh, they hear us discuss is um, something that they can take back to their, their classroom. Um, so it has kind of those two levels, I guess, where on the one hand, something ideal, uh, no behavior issues, unless maybe the computers are acting up or whatever. Uh, but on the other hand, right, this, this kind of stuff is something that you can actually inject into your classroom um, under the right conditions. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with teachers being passionate, passionate as well as knowledgeable about what they're teaching. Uh, which, you know, is not always the case, <laughs> but it ought to be. Right. And so 
one way to fight ignorance is to increase knowledge and to disseminate information. And on this wonderful platform, like you said, this ideal platform where we have the ideal audience and we have the ideal teachers or seminar conductors at the head of the table. Well, the only, <laughs> there is no excuse not to offer the best possible product. And so, well, shall we, Mr. Wesley Shantz? Shall, I, shall we jump into Reading the Raven by Edgar Allan Poe? A famous Baltimorean and romantic poet, which listeners, we can talk a little bit more about that later, but we, we figured that in a traditional English class, your English teacher will have that covered, the historical context, the literary tradition, some of the literary terms, and actually we take a little bit of an issue with teaching literature like that, so we're, really, we're, we're far more interested in just diving in. Um, yeah. And so, well, um, Wes... Mind if I give this crack? Yeah, read it out. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this, nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember, it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, "'some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. "'This it, it is, and nothing more. "'Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. "'Sir,' said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore. "'But the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, "'and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door. "'That I scarce was sure I heard you. "'Here I opened wide the door, darkness there and never more and nothing more deep into the darkness peering long i stood there wondering fearing doubting dream dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before but the silence was unbroken and the stillness gave no token and the only word there spoken was the whispered word lenore this i whispered and an echo murmured back the word lenore merely this nothing more back into the chamber turning all my soul within me burning soon again i heard a tapping somewhat louder than before surely said i surely that is something at my window lattice let me see then what thereat is and this mystery explore let my heart be still a moment and this mystery explore tis the wind and nothing more Ooh, still going Open here I flung the shutter, when with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a saintly raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady, perched upon my chamber door, perched upon a bust of a palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly grim and ancient raven, wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's plutonian shore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though it's 
answer little meaning, little relevancy bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever, ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door with such name as nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on the placid bus, spoke only that one word as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing farther than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before on the morrow. He will leave me as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, doubtless said I, what it utters is it's only stock in store. Caught from some unhappy master, whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never, nevermore. But the raven, still beguiling all my fancy into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking, fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this green, this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore, meant in croaking, nevermore. This I sat, engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining, on the cushion's velvet lining, that lamplight gloated over, but whose velvet violet lining with lamplight gloating over, she shall press, ah, nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed with an unseen censer, swung by seraphim, whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee, respite, respite, and nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, oh, quaff this kind nepenthe, and forgot or forget this lost Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Do you want to pick up from there, Wes? This is, this is killer. You're, you're out of breath. It's okay. Yeah, so the last few here. All right. Prophet, said I, thing of evil. Prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore, is there... Is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil. Prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden, it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore. Clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked, upstarting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. Very good, very good. Applause, applause. That is, that is one heck of a poem. That's a long... Uh, poem. So thanks for sticking with us on that one. 
listeners as we sort of uh, go up there. Well, uh, so Wes, just to offer something immediately after that, that reading, um, I wonder if the, the best technique for this might be to give sort of a broad overview of what it is we just heard, and then to sort of analyze stanza by stanza what we saw, and maybe even to give uh, a brief um, comment on the importance of speaking poetry aloud. Yeah. Um, and so, well, actually, let's start with that very quickly, because there, there, something Ezra Pound, um, who wrote the ABC of, I think, style, the ABC of writing, it's called the ABC of something, and ha, it's a very good work on style and on poetry and on the importance of speaking poetry aloud, but a comment he makes is that poetry is a sort of devolved form of the singing of former epic poetry, and that it's supposed to be embodied to some degree, and that how it sounds is like, like how a gymnast moves. It's, it's everything. It's, um, it's not just the information that's being expressed by moving your eye across a page like you do when you read inside your head, but it's also, there's a performance act aspect to it, and there's a certain yeah. rhythm to it that you can catch, and you can do it right, and you can do it wrong when you're speaking it out loud. And, um, well, I just wondered what, if you had any thoughts on that. I know you, you have a much more musical ear and you're more, far more musically inclined and poetically inclined than I am. So I, yeah, I, I, uh, I know that spoken word poetry is enjoying quite a renaissance of the, these days, I don't know, maybe going back a few decades even. Um, and, and people are, are much more aware of how valuable it is to be able to, um, use your voice for something that's not just everyday speech you know a lot of times it's in in the context of political speech and a lot of spoken word poems have a, a strongly political bent to them but they don't necessarily have to they can really be um, expressive and they can be intellectual and they can be uh, really tied with the the long tradition of poetry that does extend back unbroken to those uh, those epic muses and uh, and whatnot um, from from the days of yore right so but as you say, yeah, the first thing that I think anyone who's, you know, studying poetry should do is like read poems out loud and, and if possible, um, memorize poems like this is, this is how you, you can kind of detach yourself from the page and really focus on your delivery of the lines, right, and, and focus on how they are formed and how they're delivered and that, that performance aspect of it. Um, and so yeah, I think, you know, coming into a classroom, it's a little bit daunting sometimes to have to like read out loud. So your students might not want to do it. So it might be down to you. Um, with that said, there's probably a kid or two in that room who would love to read the poem out loud and has no idea how. And so you've got to teach them and you've got to model it um, until they're, you know, uh, get a little bit of practice at it. But, but yeah, I think that that comes first. But it, it's also super important to have some kind of idea of what the words mean that you're reading and, and what the phrases mean and what the, the thing as a whole means um, so that you're not totally lost in the sounds, which especially with Poe, I think can, can definitely happen <laughs> uh, to you as you're, as you're reading his poetry. It's so, um, so musical and so artful. That for sure happened to me while I was reading and just an interesting phenomenon while I'm reading. I know we've both read Plato's Ion and in the Ion, Socrates, a philosopher, pokes fun at a rhapsode who's memorized the poetry of the Iliad and, and the Odyssey, but is shown to have been 
have, have been wanting in his analysis of those poems. He couldn't interpret them very well. He didn't have much to say about the poetry, though he could, though he had memorized all of the poetry. And so when I was reading, and this is something I recall happening when I was a student too, especially in high school, I, I wasn't taking the information in at all points. I was almost purely reciting. And, and it's as if there is sort of a middle ground where you're performing while also realizing what it is you're saying and um, reading at the same time that would be ideal that I was sort of missing there. Um, well, you get, you get carried away by the rhythm that's so forceful in, in each line here. Um, it's reinforced by the shapes of the words and by the rhymes and the, re the repetitions. Um, so there's a lot of like poety things going on that make it difficult to even start to access the content of the, sort of like the plot of the poem. Um, but if you, like if you were to just like say in a nutshell what the poem was about, what would you, what would you summarize it as being about? Well, so I would, uh, I would summarize it as, um, and I, there are a few different levels of analysis I'd like to come at this from, but this is the one I'd like to start with, um, that this guy has recently experienced a loss, seemingly a woman named Lenore, who was very close to him, could be a mother, could be a friend, probably a wife, uh, because he's thinking about her so much, or someone he was in love with. Um, he's trying to ignore the fact of his emotions and how he feels by digging through a work of ancient lore, which almost undoubtedly means mythology or more likely even philosophy. He's mm -hmm. looking for some, some idea from some ethicist that will make him no longer feel that pain. And so while he's attempting to do that, his, uh, his sort of limbic system or, or hypothalamus is sending up to him some indications that um, there is an anomaly that he has to deal with, that, that his map is now incomplete, that his map needs to be restructured at a major level, meaning that the thing that it was lost, which happens to be a person, Lenore, was of such consequence to his uh, perception of reality and his day-to-day -day routine that he's going to have to remap a substantial amount of, um, of reality for himself after this loss. And... Um, and he's been, and he's trying to ignore that eventuality. He's trying to, he's trying to hide away from that responsibility. And so, so as the Jungians would say, the unconscious starts to knock at the door. Um, <laughs> and you know, the, and as Peterson would say, and the behaviorists, the more you run from, from something that you identify as threat, the bigger the threat is and the more power and additional sort of like associative, clusters it, it pulls into itself and uh, which as you run from it it becomes stronger as you become smaller and sort of an alice in wonderland in the tea room mm -hmm. uh, sort of situation and so and so this guy is running from this responsibility the fact that lenore will never come back and he's going to have to deal with this and now the unconscious the unions would say or his sort of threat detected detection system as the neuroscientists and Peterson would say is starting to send off the alert and starting to send bigger and bigger and bigger signs like the mental equivalent of, of the physical symptoms of cancer or something like that. And this eventually manifests in this symbol of wisdom, the Raven, which is, uh, you know, one of the 
animals of Odin on his shoulder that then stands itself on a bust of Pallas, which is Athena, the goddess of wisdom in the Greek tradition. And so it's a double symbol of wisdom. So it's heavy handed uh, mm -hmm. there. Um, and one of my colleagues said that Poe said that he didn't intend to do that. And I would say that, well, yeah, clearly look how heavy handed it is. I wouldn't have claimed to have done that intentionally either. Um, and likely what happened is he was unconsciously thinking up symbols of wisdom and how wisdom will obtrude on you in a conscious or unconscious or semi-conscious way. And those were the images that simply came to his mind. Like when you're trying to convey a thought or feeling and certain words just come to your mind in the language you're fluent in. And so this raven comes in, stands on the bat, the, 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 um, bust of palace and just says nevermore it's not going to happen it's like the situation Orpheus finds himself in after he tries to get his wife who died on their wedding night <laughs> by a snake bite of course um, back from the underworld it will never happen and that that seems to be what wisdom actually is the pragmatic solution to the problem of a situation and this problem here is he will not accept the fact that Lenore is gone and move on and so what the wise person does is cuts the, cuts the cord, um, right. cuts his losses. Uh, she's gone. Now you have to move on. Even though it's such a big deal, you, that's precisely why you have to move on because you have so much work to do. And so it strikes me in the large picture as a story of a guy who's trying to repress something terrible that's happened and the responsibility he has for updating his map of reality, which is causing him to, um, which is starting to sort of drive him mad. And I would add to that, that this is a theme that comes up in Poe's poetry in the telltale heart too. When again, so a man like in crime and punishment effectively commits a murder, <coughs> excuse me. He, it's still his nervous system. It's still his emotions that end up outing him. He attempts to repress his feeling and ultimately his feeling overwhelms him. The elephant, as Jonathan Haidt would say, overwhelms the writer. And in this poem, it's the same thing. You can try with your prefrontal cortex and your consciousness and your rational intellect to um, repress your emotions. But I don't think there's a single uh, mythological or psychological system that recommends that. Um, and this seems to be a manifestation in symbolic form of how that happens and of the sort of thing that causes that to happen. Um, so, yeah, that might have been a little bit more than what we were just looking for. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, that would be my broad view of it. And, and how about the end of the poem then? Uh, where does he wind up um, by the end? Let's see. Let's see. Be that word our so the second stand or the penultimate stand up stanza that means the one right before the last be that word our sign of parting bird or fiend i shrieked of starting get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore the two references there to shakespeare's tempest and to um to virgil the plutonian shore is pluto's shore hades's shore the underworld of the greeks and the romans leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken. So to say that wisdom is lying seems that this man has fallen off the path of the hero, is taking the path of Cain, and is, um, and he's does not, he's what? Yeah, I'm sorry. He's stuck. 
he's stuck, right? Leave my loneliness unbroken. Exactly. He's not accepting the call. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, uh, speaking that uh that poem, I've got I've got to I've got to get in shape. Put the bust <laughs> above my door, and again above my door. It could not be any clearer. This is right in front of his face. It's even actually looming down up from above him. It's easier to see than something right in front of his face. That's why we put TV slightly above us and forward in front of us. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart. So apparently he knows that even though he's called this this um, raven a liar, he seems to know that it's speaking the truth. And take thy form from off my door, quoth the raven nevermore. <coughs> I'm a, I have some water here. And the raven never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of palace just above my chamber door. And his eyes all the seeming of a demon's that is streaming. And the lamplight over him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted evermore. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I get I get the sense there that as you're saying, he's um he is unable to deal with this uh this message. Um he takes the message to mean, you know, to be the answer to his questions about Lenore. Uh and as a result of this information that he's not able to accept he's his 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 depression or his um fixation or, or whatever you want to whatever term is apparently um unending right it's it's still happening and so there's a kind of there's a kind of whirlpool effect that seems to have um have caught him in here uh that that the sense that i get uh, is that that is mirrored in, or sort of reflected, I guess, in the structure of the poem, right? In, in how artful, how rigid, um, how driving the rhythm and all of the uh, stylistic effects are, right? They, they sort of pull you along and you're, and you're caught by them and you're not um, able to sort of, you're not able to really follow the train of thought in a coherent way because it's uh, because of the way that it is conveyed to you. Um, you you have to access it in this form which is um, so so artificial right um, it's it's an incredibly uh, bewildering um, feeling I think as, as you like you know as you said it like wears you out trying to read this poem out loud at a, at a good clip. Um, and it takes, I think, a lot of readings of it to, to start to, to get through that um, surface uh, sound quality to get to some of the, the bizarre um, psychological or, or philosophical or whatever um, content that's in here. Um, so, yeah, so basically, like, as we were trying to look at the poem, we ended up sort of reading out more of it over again, right? And and so it's this kind of back and forth between putting the thing in your own words and returning to the source, to the to the spring of the words of the poet, um, checking the one against the other and being refreshed by uh, this kind of ever flowing um, stream of, of language, right? 
and then trying to kind of chisel out from that um, some sort of sense, something that makes sense to you, right? Because anyone is going to be able to bring something more to this poem than, than what you or, you know, any of us is getting it um, on our own. And that's kind of like the, the wonderful thing about getting to have a classroom full of people all looking at this one thing together. Um, or, you know, ideally that would be the case. Uh, yeah, and that just makes yeah. me think just to engage with one part of what you said a little bit earlier and then to add something else from a more holistic angle is uh, I want to make a connection to what you said about the whirlpool and talk about that as a Charybdis from the Odyssey as something that totally defeats you and destroys the mission. If something hits you as a Charybdis, you're out of the game. And this guy seems to be denying wisdom and being out of the game. And just to connect that to Dante's Inferno, which I think that connection is here, um, talking with talking about Plutonian shores, mm -hmm. um, reference to Virgil, who's a part of Dante's Inferno, and also a demon that is dreaming. Well, and the fact that this guy is, you said, sort of churning within himself, not, um, not moving forward, not motivated, not willing to take in the anomalous information which he must ingest himself that will probably break him apart so that he has to put himself back together so that he can move forward in the world. Well, that's precisely the image of Satan in Dante's Inferno. Mm. He is himself churning on traitors that he can never digest. He is trying to digest anomalous information that he never swallows. He never, and he is also impotently beating his wings into his tears that mix with the blood of the traitors, Judas, Ca Judas Cassius and uh, Brutus, um, mm -hmm. that then forms an ice around him that keeps him from moving anywhere. So he expends all this energy, but does no work. He's stuck. He's isolated by his own efforts to deceive himself, to not understand what he's done, to not understand his situation. And so in that respect, this character is not only a, a figure of Cain, but even the more fully, more sophisticated, more developed figure of Lucifer, the mm -hmm. person who, like, like the uh, character from a Notes from the Underground that we discussed, right. spends all his time and energy Seeving himself, keeping himself from seeing the, and attempting to wrangle with, to wrestle with, like Jacob and the angel, the um, the truth that stands above his door and clearly speaks to him in a way he understands. Uh, yeah. yeah. The yeah. So the the mythological kind of resonance uh, that that you're seeing in that is, I think a really like productive way to get some kind of um, grounding, right? Some, some place to, to push off from, to start to make sense of the poem. Um, that's the kind of stuff I think that a teacher, you know, is there to provide. Um, a lot of times a text of this would, would probably have some notes and things um, that would try to explain some of the references that he's making, right? You know, things like nice Plutonian shore, well, you, you would need um, some knowledge of of what that refers to uh, to even begin to make sense of it. Um, the The connections to other literature, of course, like that's something that you're going to have to 
have a kind of sense of where your class is at. Like, is, is there like a coherent curriculum that these students have gone through to where they can um, make those references and make those leaps with you? Or like how much of that would you have to provide as scaffolding um, to give them a sense of, of what the speaker is referring to? Um, you know, if, if all that they uh, have in their mind um, for, for the word demon is a sort of vague, uh, uninformed image of something sort of scary, vaguely, you know, Halloween or something, then you, you would have to kind of enrich that um, with, you know, as you described, this uh, much bigger and far reaching, more far reaching tradition um, that has been thinking about evil and, um, and its place in metaphysical uh, reality for for a really long time um yeah, to the yeah. extent that you could you could make this i mean you could make an entire um curriculum out of you know a single poem depending on how how deeply you wanted to go into um understanding all that was in it yeah and i wanted to yeah tie that back to the second point that i never made in my last in my last words which okay. is this. It seems like two prevailing ways to interpret literature now are, are not interpreting at all. There's the one sort of give the literary notes about this person's life and the tradition he's in and look for the literary terms and like identify the tone and mood of the text. But it's like you're checking off boxes when you do that sort of thing. It's very artificial. You're looking for artificial elements within what you consider an artificially constructed method of communication, which you don't see the value in at all because you don't particularly like being constrained in this way uh, um, in your interpretation. Yeah. Uh, the other way that's, I would say, equally bad, just in terms of inability to produce critical thinking and the problems necessary to produce uh, increases in consciousness, which is what is sought when you teach literature to people, is um, the sort of postmodern just uh, pretend like every interpretation is equal method. That's also, I think, equally unproductive. One of the, the, the purpose of being a teacher is to produce mountains that your students must climb and in the pursuit of the peak of these mountains, which is ultimately your sort of, as figure of society, godlike affection, um, which I think is truly what the function of a teacher is, um, is to provide a mountain for the students to climb so that they become strong enough to climb mountains during the course of one's education. And that means you have to push them. And that means you can't just accept any garbage thing they say as brilliant. And you can't constantly say that anything that they say is equally valid because that's certainly not true. Um, nobody in any performance-based industry ever, particularly coaching or sales, can would make that sort of claim. They're quantitative measures. And I think, I think as a teacher, you can, you can utilize what, well, rather than simply saying everything is equally good and thus not giving the students anything to strive towards, what you can actually do is interpret it in the way that we're attempting to, to think through what's happening here, to think on the fly with the students and thus to model thinking for them, to not necessarily have the answer. And that is sailing or that is surfing. And yes, you can't fall in the water while you're doing it, but the whole point 
is that the whole process you're modeling for the student. You're teaching them how to think. This just happens to be the specific task that's going to produce that capacity in them if done as well as possible, if done right, basically. Um, and so those two, the postmodern methodology and sort of the literary appreciation or historical context methodology strike me both as missing, missing the point of teaching poetry and ultimately failing to, to, um, to produce in the students the capacity to think in, the, in a way that actually thinking about the poetry would produce. Um, because I, I think the whole point of being able to understand the, the gist of a poem and then to go in and analyze its particular elements in order to understand uh, how it had the full impact it had is it's trying to teach you how to go into your own experiences and your own life and get the gist of what was happening and understand what's happening around you and the narrative structure of your own being, as Heidegger would say, or, and, and go in to the constituent parts in your memory and be brave enough to do that and analyze the situation so that you can improve, you know, your being, your quality of being, your life. And I do think that that is what poetry is meant to help you do. That is the shield of Perseus. <coughs> and so that's what I think we're missing. And so that, that would be my, my particular reason, my, my raison d'etre for being here. Yeah, I, that's I, I would say well, well said, and in in the uh, interests of our keeping this to a pretty brief, right, um, uh, manageable length, uh, I guess we can we can revisit this another time and and provide some uh, further context and and angles on it perspectives. Um, but there, that's that's pretty good work for for a first shot at this. I think. Yeah, and. Um we went longer than we expected because the the software is being better than we expected it used to have a time limit on it but maybe they got rid of that time limit because of some sort of outcry so thank you zoom for now but we'll we'll see and we were intending to keep these segments short so that if you are using them in your classroom you um uh they won't take up a full period and you can you can either listen to them yourself in order to help your with your lessons or you can use them as lessons if you and your students find yourselves interested in us, you can also send us requests. Wes, uh, how would you like people to try and contact you if they want to, if other, if teachers want information from you? Uh, I think through the Facebook page would be the simplest way, so. All right, and we are at the History of Western Thought on Facebook. We have about 615 followers right now. We'd love to get that up to 1,000. I mean, we'd like to help. The reason we do this is to help. And so we would like to help as many people as possible. And um, I think both Wes and I would like this to be a full-time gig as soon as, as soon as possible. And so, you know, any, any help, any support, any clicks, any sharing is always, always, always uh, appreciated. We are trying the entrepreneurial route. It is very difficult. We do work a lot for not very much, uh, but, but it, it's a good life and we want to do even more of it. Yeah, it's a start. I like it. It's a start. Yeah. All right. And uh, yeah, I like what you said about revisiting this. We might have one or two more lessons on the Raven. We might include some more information if you want some more traditional stuff to go along with that. I can also explain what that Pegasus means uh, uh, in the next one and where poetry comes from and um, 
Well, it's very interesting. Yes, the fact that uh, Pegasus comes out of the head of Medusa and then uses his hoof on Mount Helicon to open a stream that leads to the muses seems to indicate that what human nature is is to create poetry or stories. And so, well, we can, maybe we can lead with that next time. Something uh, talking about the full endeavor. Um, all right. Well, Wes, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Bye.